Hello and welcome to episode 24 of ERRX. And in today's episode, we are doing an expert talks series and we have with us today, Dr. Casey Lee. Hi, Casey. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. Uh, Would you just start off by kind of telling us about your training and what you're currently doing in your clinical role? Yeah. So um, I graduated pharmacy school at the University of Florida um, back in 2014, which sounds a lot farther now than it used to, and did my PGI-1 training at Beth Israel in Boston. Then I moved to Orlando, Florida. Florida's home for me and started working in the emergency department at Orlando Regional Medical Center. Uh, where I practiced emergency medicine pharmacy for three years before deciding to go back for more. So I went back for a clinical toxicology emergency medicine fellowship in Jacksonville, Florida at the UF Health uh, or UF Jacksonville Hospital and the Florida Poison Control Center in Jacksonville. Um, And I just finished that, happy to say, this past summer and have moved back to Orlando. So I'm back at Orlando Regional again, Um, hopefully um, picking up where I left off. Perfect. Well, congratulations on all that training. And before we started the episode, Casey and I had talked about, I actually have lived in Jacksonville, Florida as well, and and used to go visit before all this COVID stuff happened. Uh, It's a great area. Yeah, lots to explore. (laughs) It was fun. Perfect. Well, let's get right into it. And the topic of today's episode that we're going to be discussing with Casey is methemoglobinemia. So what is it? Uh, What drugs are used to treat it? And a bunch of other things. And we have with us, obviously, what I would consider kind of an expert in this field. So I'll just kind of rattle off some questions and we'll have Casey uh, share her knowledge with us. So Casey, can you describe to us, uh, chemically speaking, what is methemoglobinemia? Sure. So when we think about methemoglobinemia, obviously that would be an elevated amount of methemoglobin in the blood. So hemoglobin, generally speaking, is our macromolecule that is responsible for oxygen transport but it can be altered. There are different ways to alter that hemoglobin molecule. Methemoglobin is a form of hemoglobin that's been oxidized. So the heme iron configuration that's normally an Fe2 plus state is changed from that ferrous state to its ferric state. So unlike normal hemoglobin, methemoglobin can't reversibly bind oxygen, which means that ultimately we have compromised oxygen delivery to the tissues. And normally there are ways for the body to actually Uh, keep those levels of that hemoglobin down to about less than 2% um, through its natural um, cytochrome B5 reductase system. But sometimes that can be overwhelmed, particularly in the setting of xenobiotics. Absolutely. That is a great rundown of methemoglobinemia. And it's just interesting to know, like you said, that we actually have a natural defense mechanism against this. And I think I read somewhere that Normally, we run at a level of about less than 1% or 1%-ish, but our body is able to compensate for that. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Perfect. So we're both pharmacists, obviously. So what are the most common agents or drugs that can cause methemoglobinemia? And also, are there some environmental factors or foods that can cause it? And then is it hereditary? Yeah, so uh, there are certainly um, hereditary conditions. Those are easy to knock out because there aren't too many of them. (laughs) Um, Those are typically going to be related to that cytochrome B5 reductase um, inefficiency. So in patients who are deficient in cytochrome B5 reductase or patients who have an altered form of hemoglobin, hemoglobin M, those are some situations where you might see hereditary methemoglobinemia. Um, As pharmacists, I think that we like to um, really hone in on some of those drugs that can induce it. So the red flag 
drugs that will probably most pharmacy students will learn about uh, would be things like local anesthetics. So benzocaine, especially among the local anesthetics, but certainly any of the local anesthetics. Um, Dapsone is another key drug that has been implicated in many cases of drug-induced hemoglobinemia. Um, Phenazepiridine, interestingly, I didn't really think too much about before I started the toxicology fellowship, but in some toddlers, even just a few tablets of phenazepiridine has caused clinically significant methemoglobinemia. Um, environmentally, certainly some of the nitrates that are involved in food processing, fertilizers, uh, you can see those uh, cause methemoglobinemia in patients who maybe are consuming well water, where that runoff may come into play. And then there are certain other chemicals, uh, any of the nitrites, nitrates, those are all going to be compounds that we think about as potentially causing methemoglobinemia. Sure. Yeah. Very interesting. And the phenazopyridine actually caught me off guard too. That was one that I probably learned at some point during my education, but then had completely forgotten about. Yeah. Sneaks in there. (laughs) Yeah. And exactly. And I mean, the big ones, you know, for us, I mean, especially working in the ER is I kind of think about those, uh, the cetacane spray and like you said, the benzocaine sprays and especially during those GI procedures, Yeah. And it's interesting to think about, you know, we don't really know what happens in a lot of those case reports that we get of those, uh, those sprays being used or implicated in um, methemoglobinemia. Um, Interestingly, when I was um, going back over some of the literature for benzocaine specifically, um, it sounds like they actually did try to take a look at that, um, that dosing that might be used with benzocaine spray. In 2004, they did a review of 132 cases of benzocaine-induced hemoglobinemia, And interestingly, in 69 cases in which they actually described the dose used of benzocaine, 37 of those patients, so about 50% of those patients, had received just a single spray of benzocaine. Wow. So basically what you described to me. <laughs> that spray, like just a 10-second long spray, I mean, there's something going on here, right? I mean, yeah, you think. it's interesting. And Benzocaine really out of um, the local anesthetics is probably uniquely uh, predis- it's, it's a uniquely predisposed drug to cause methemoglobinemia. Um, it's metabolized to aniline, which is probably one of the original compounds which was noted to cause methemoglobinemia. So things like lidocaine and its metabolites, um, prilocaine, those all have um, metabolites that will behave similarly, but benzocaine is probably because of that metabolism to aniline is probably um, the most likely to cause significant methemoglobinemia. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. And then cetacaine obviously is a combination that contains some benzocaine and some tetracaine. And I think there's Mm -hmm. another one as well. So that definitely makes sense. And, you know, speaking of, um, I read somewhere that even chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine um, can induce methemoglobinemia at times, and which is interesting now in this COVID era, if we're going to see more cases of that, if more people are using hydroxychloroquine or or if they're not. So that'll be something interesting to watch too. I don't know if you've had experience with that or... We'll have to keep our eyes peeled. And I'm sure some of those reports will be forthcoming as we look back at this um, early COVID era. Um, I haven't really come across uh, any recent reports of methemoglobinemia from what how people have been using hydroxychloroquine lately, but I think it'll be something that we should probably keep our eyes peeled for. Absolutely. All right. So um, when we talk about methemoglobin levels, so how do specific levels correlate with signs and symptoms that a patient might experience? So 
actually fairly well in most patients. Uh, most patients who have low hemoglobin levels, so maybe something around the lines of less than 10%, a lot of those patients will be asymptomatic. So um, there was any instance of drug-induced hemoglobinemia at all because they may not have any symptoms. Sure. As you move into um, the 20% range, uh, patients start to become more uncomfortable. That's where they may have symptoms like headache, um, they may feel dizzy, um, may feel lethargic. And above somewhere between 20 to 30% is where you might start to see some of that cyanotic skin discoloration as well. So um, our blue patients who receive our blue antidote. So you'll start to see that around the 25 to 30% air, um, range. Once, I, once you hit the 40, 40s and the 50s, that's where we see our very serious toxicity start to form. So the neurologics, uh, symptoms, uh, cardiovascular collapse, uh, seizures, um, shock, those are all associated with higher levels between 50% to 60% or higher even in some severe, very severe poisonings. Interesting. And then that kind of leads me on to the next question in terms of, you know, diagnosing methemoglobinemia. And when we talk about signs and symptoms, from what I understand, um, we have blood gases that can technically detect methemoglobinemia. Things actually don't help us in the diagnosis, for example, uh, oxygen saturations or like your standard pulse ox. Is, is that correct? Right. Yeah. So I think most most um, emergency departments should have access to blood gas with coox, um, which will make that diagnosis a lot easier. But um, some of the clues could be just a kind of a persistently low uh, SpO2 on that pulse oximeter. Um, sure. Pulse oximeters are pretty interesting. And, you know, there's some variability in terms of the, the machines themselves. But the met hemoglobin actually will absorb at a wavelength um, that's very similar to um, deoxyhemoglobin. So that's why patients with significant methemoglobinemia can look cyanotic, have that um, chocolate brown characteristic uh, textbook phrase, blood color. Um, mm -hmm. Very methemoglobin levels will cause the pulse oximeter trend toward 85%. At um, absorbs red and infrared light, which the pulse oximeter depends on um, equally well. So the R value, which is basically a ratio of, so that'll actually correspond to an SpO2 of 80 to 85%. So when we look at the pulse oximeter, it becomes very unreliable in patients with either mild or very severe methemoglobinemia because their actual um, oxygen saturation may either be very much worse than what we're seeing, or it could actually be better. It's very interesting. Um, and if we have, uh, obviously, a patient with the methemoglobinemia, what are some tried and true treatment options? So the most widely accepted treatment of, for methemoglobinemia, of course, is going to be our methylene blue, our blue antidote for our blue patient. I like that. So, I like that. I'll have to remember that. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite for the med students and the pharmacy students coming through that they never forget. So um, methylene blue is um, a great drug. It's an old drug, um, originally had been used as an antiseptic, um, but it was actually back in the 30s that it was first used for aniline-induced methemoglobinemia. So it's um, dosed um, at one to two milligrams per kilo of body weight. Um, most people will start at about one milligram per kilo. 
And that's given over five minutes to lessen some of that injection site pain. So the way this works is it enhances the um, activity of NADPH methemoglobin reductase and ultimately will bring your um, oxidized ferric state back to its ferrous state of um, methemoglobin. So it uh, takes us back from the Fe3 plus to the Fe2 plus state so that, so that hemoglobin can then again carry oxygen correctly. Um, I think one of the, it's probably one of the most interesting drugs that we can can dispense in the pharmacy because it is such a very deep, pretty shade of blue. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one of the biggest things to, to note here is that uh, you can repeat a dose if you see a partial improvement, um, although larger doses are like, unlikely to be beneficial and actually may um, contribute to your problem and um, cause things like hemolysis. And in some cases, when given with other agents like serotonergic agents have also been Im implicated in um, serotonergic toxicity and other um, other adverse effects. Yeah, that's a great point. And so to be clear, um, when we talk about methylene blue and we talk about using methylene blue, um, it's my understanding that we usually don't use it unless levels are somewhere around 20% or greater. Um, or if you have a patient that's compromised with lower levels, that would be an indication for methylene blue. Is that kind of your takeaway from it as well? Right. So sometimes you'll get these patients who come in um, and you may either incidentally or because of your clinical suspicion, get a, carbo um, a blood gas with coaximetry and identify that they have an elevated hemoglobin level. But if they're asymptomatic, then generally those patients don't um, need methylene blue. Um, or if patients are very mildly sym symptomatic, they may benefit from some supplemental oxygen and not necessarily need treatment with methemoglobinemia. Generally, you won't see patients less than with a level less than 20% needing treatment with met, uh, with methylene but sure. they're certainly you know based on the patient's clinical presentation if they're very symptomatic um, out of proportion to what we'd expect from that level it's still worth that challenge great and i know you had mentioned you know that potentially um, it can cause or contribute to serotonin syndrome in patients that are taking serotonergic agents um Tell me a little bit about, if you can, in the setting of uh, G6PD deficiency and the controversy there with using methylene blue in these patients. Right. So um, there's two concerns with patients who are G6PD deficient. Um, I think a big concern would certainly be hemolysis, and those patients might be more susceptible to hemolysis after use. Um, probably the more common and the bigger issue, it would be that it probably it would just wouldn't work. So G6PD deficient patients wouldn't be able to convert um, NADP to NADPH, which sure. is actually needed to convert methylene blue to its leukomethylene blue form. And that leukomethylene blue is actually responsible for the reduction of Fe3 plus to Fe2 plus. So um, yes, risk of hemolysis, but even more so, we're, we're not likely to see a good response from those patients who are G6PD deficient. Great. Very, very interesting stuff. All of it. Is there any tips or tricks uh, for giving methylene blue? I know personally, I've only seen it given once or twice. Um, actually, the first time I've ever seen it given, it was more for vasoplegia for a patient that mm -hmm. was on you know, right. three or four pressors. But I've never really given it for this indication in my you know, few years in the ER. Um, have you personally given it? Are there any tips and tricks with giving it? Any side effects we should watch out for? 
Yeah, um, only um, I've over the phone uh, recommended it uh, more time more often than I've actually dispensed it, which may have, I think has been once in five years. Sure, um, they don't they don't actually walk in through our doors um, super often, but um, I think the most important things to know are that um, the the local response is probably the most uncomfortable response, uh, uncomfortable side effect for patients. Um, a good IV and a good flush afterward will help diminish some of that infusion site pain that can happen sometimes with methylene blue. Otherwise, it's generally pretty well tolerated. Uh, there are some reports that you might see a slight dip in the pulse ox reading because of the uh, methylene blue's um, actual, its own intrinsic absorbance. I um, haven't personally seen that happen or had anyone describe that. Um, you should see improvement pretty quickly. So um, if you don't see good improvement within the first 15 minutes, um, then you can re-challenge, maybe um, think about it, whether it was enough of a dose and re-challenge, I'd probably just go with another one milligram per kilo um, or think about other reasons why the patient might be cyanotic. Sure. Great point. Well, that about wraps it up on my end. Do you have anything else that you would want to add or anything you want to circle back to? No, um, I think it's um, a really great topic and definitely one where um, pharmacists are very useful in kind of reviewing possible agents that could be causing it. Um, it's it's a very enjoyable uh, disease state because it responds very well to therapy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, it's always um, gratifying. Kind of a fun one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's very gratifying. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you, Casey, so much for your time and for your expertise in this, uh, in this disease state. Uh, I really appreciate having you on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. 